So when we get the chance to sing those songs, do you ever wonder what it, how to make that true? How to, how to like truly declare, Lord, change my heart? Because, I mean, do you wrestle with understanding that your heart needs to be changed? Do you understand that like there, there is something inside of you that's broken and needs to be changed? Yeah, I mean, like, we, we, we praise God, we, we, we glorify him, we make much of that, but have you ever wrestled with saying, yeah, I, God, I want to make much of your name, I want to glorify you? Well, I think we struggle with that because we wrestle with the, the idea that God is great and, and we're not so great, right? We, we like to believe that we're better than we are. And, and I'm not saying that from the standpoint of, hey, we're scum, we're dirt, we're, we're worse than worms. No, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, right? But what I am saying is that this is not a place that we like to go to. It's not pleasant thinking on our brokenness. It doesn't exactly make us walk away feeling encouraged and strengthened and feeling like, yeah, let's go face the world. I know how, how horrible I am. And, and so oftentimes we don't give ourselves space to, to think on that. But, but here's the value of thinking on maybe those places where we might be broken. See, I don't think we can truly understand God's graciousness, his goodness, his greatness, unless we understand what stands opposite of that. Like, you don't understand how dark the room is until the lights are brought up brighter and you, you see the contrast between, between darkness and light. A, a, a number of years ago, I was given these glasses that uh, I'm colorblind, and when you put these glasses on, you see, you see the world as it was meant to be. Right, like I was fine seeing the world as a colorblind person. Like I, I really didn't see much of a difference until I put those glasses on. And, and then I began to see the vibrancy of the colors that God created. And, and it was in that contrast that I realized just like how, how bleak and how like short or, or how, uh, how insufficient seeing the world through colorblind eyes really is. And so it is with God. We actually get a chance to, to understand how awesome he is when we have the courage to go into those places where we consider our own brokenness. Now, I imagine I, I, I probably don't need to convince you of this, but our world is broken, right? We have this war going on in Ukraine right now. We, we see the many families that are displaced. We hear the stories of, of people going without food and and. and and for not just for a little while, but for days on end. Step away from that, there's, there's a, a very real uh, possibility, and actually it's a reality in, in some countries there in Africa, of a famine unlike they've ever experienced before. It means going without food and, and a harvest and, and provisions for your family. There are so many things around this world that are broken. Do I need to convince you of this? I don't think so, right? We get that. What I do think maybe we need to convince one another of is that the truth of the matter is that it's not the world that's broken, but each and every one of us, you, me, that we're broken. I think I've shared this before, but uh, I love this quote by this Russian journalist uh, by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He, he says this, and by the way, this is from his own personal witness being imprisoned in a gulag in Russia. He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes or, or, or political parties either, but right through every human heart. 
Listen, if you want to say that our world is broken, if you want to say that, that the institutions that make up our world, if you want to say that the, the social structures are broken, okay, I get that. But it's really because, first and foremost, the people who make up those institutions are broken. Broken by sin. And traditionally, this time of, uh, of 40 days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, we call Lent. And, and, and Lent is meant to be this time where we grow in our awareness of sin's hold on us. Where we grow in our awareness of, of where brokenness has kind of stepped in and, and left an impression on our lives, has come to identify us. And, and like I said, no one enjoys doing that. No one enjoys sitting there and thinking how insufficient or broken I am or, or, or why I should feel ashamed or guilty. But the reality is that when we do that, we become aware of something else. We become aware of how great God is and how gracious God is and how loving God is in extending his forgiveness through his son, Jesus, to us. So I think Lent offers us a chance to examine our hearts and to go through this, this detox from the various influences of, of our culture or our communities or, or, or even our routines that we live in our lives where we've kind of built up this, this, this kind of way of being without even thinking about it that, that allows sin to drive our lives unless we take this time to think on, on that and, and to consider how God can can transform it, can renew it, can purify our hearts, can, can fulfill the prayer of our heart like we just sang, to, 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 let, to have God change us. Lent is a time to pray over and over again this prayer that the psalmist records in Psalm 139. Let, let me read it. This, the psalmist says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What a simple two-verse prayer that we can pray day by day through Lent. And, and this is exactly what it is. Say, God, search me. Know my heart. Right? We don't have to go into this time examining our brokenness alone. But we can ask God to lead us into that place. And in God's hands, he does what? He can lead us in the way everlasting. But I think it all begins with acknowledging what Solzhenitsyn recognized. That good and evil is not just out there in the world somewhere. Good and evil passes right through our hearts. Your heart. My heart. Let that sit in. Let that sink in a little bit. That, that, that sin is not just out there in the world. It's right here in, in my heart. This is the reason why we need Jesus to enter into our world. This is why we need Jesus, not just any person, not just a good person, but the Son of God to enter into this world to make a way to purify our hearts because there's no way that we could do it. Last week we kept saying, yeah, but why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Yeah, but why? Someone, by the way, after church came up to me and said, don't you know any other letters other than Why? Yeah, it took, it took me a minute. I wasn't quite, I wasn't quite on the ball, but I, I got where they were going. This morning, I, I want us to look at a passage where we take a look, a, a very practical place of looking at how Jesus purifies what is broken. Not, not just in this moment in history where he, 
where he does a miracle or, or, or teaches a group of people, but the very fact that Jesus comes to this earth, where, where he dies on the cross for our sins, where he rises to life, that very fact purifies our brokenness, fixes what is broken and restores us to wholeness. And it's not by something you or I do, not by our ability to be a moral person or a, a, a wise person or someone who works hard on behalf of those who are, uh, who are broken and downtrodden. It's because of Jesus and Jesus alone. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. And I'm going to read uh, a few uh, verses. And, and verses following Jesus' first miracle where he turns water into wine in Cana. And I'm going to read verses 13 to 22 for us. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, that's that's what we need this morning. We need your word. We need what you have spoken and revealed to your creation to, to not just be uh, heard. We, we, we don't just need to hear it, but Lord, we need your word to take root in our hearts and our minds and our souls. Change us, Lord. Use your word, your truth to change us, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, I... I think it's kind of ironic in this passage that this idea of sin and brokenness is found not just out there in the world, but it's found even in the religious circles of the day. And I think it's ironic that, that Jesus enters into this temple and sees all this going on, and it's, it's the visibility of the brokenness in the world there in the temple that leads to this surprising scene where Jesus upends tables and drives out animals from the temple. Now, I wonder if you've ever happened upon a circumstance in your life where it's just like, whoa, this is obviously not the way it's supposed to be. Right? You walk into a room and you see something you're like, this is not, and it's not even a question in your mind. You're not like, this isn't right. Something's out of place. I don't get it. I don't know what's there. No, it's, it's obvious. Something's broken here. Tar and I had this, uh, this kind of experience of a few years back where we're uh, in the kitchen and our boys came out from the back room. We have a, a picture here of, of the boys. And uh, let's see if we, there it is. And... And we look, and we're like, this is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
I mean, if you look at Max's face, I think he knows it's not supposed to be this way too. He's kind of wondering what his older brother got him into here. But it's that, that shocking moment. This is obviously not okay. Something is wrong here. I think Alex is kind of looking like, oh, please don't let me get in trouble. This is cute, right, mom and dad? Now, if you can, there's marker all over their faces. Somehow they'd gotten into markers in the back room. And, and you know what? You're supposed to use markers to color on paper, right? Markers have a purpose, coloring on paper. But what happens when you use them in a way that they're not supposed to be used? You happen upon the scene that's where things are not the way they're supposed to be. So that's what sin is. Sin is our experience in this world where things happen that are not supposed to be. Right? God didn't create us in this way where, where we are in a world where we're allowing people to starve of, or die of starvation, where, where we allow uh, this destruction of, of people's livelihoods and, and their actual lives, where, where, where power is more important than people's lives. God doesn't create this world, didn't create this world to be this way. Sin is is why we can look at this world and say, this is not the way God intended us to be. And so it is in Jerusalem, when Jesus walks into the temple, it becomes obvious to him that this is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not how God designed worship. This is not how he designed his people to gather in the temple as a people and, and acknowledge the God for who he is, to worship him. And so at Jerusalem, at this Passover, when, when, when Jesus and his disciples walk into the temple, it's obvious that the state of people's worship was broken. It was not the way it was supposed to be. In fact, more than just looking at the space, the, the animals and the money changers and, and where it's happening there in the temple, more than saying that that was like a desecration of, of this space that God had set apart for worship, I think what we're going to notice is that Jesus is making the point that it's not the space that's broken, but it's what's going on inside people's hearts that's broken. See, the scene in the temple is one of two very uh, similar scenes in the Gospels. You may know that uh, the last week before Jesus is crucified, when he Goes, when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, and there's a very similar scene where he drives the animals out of the, of the temple and upturns the tables of money changers, where, where the, the, there's a scene of this, this like um, marketplace in the temple. And there's a couple different beliefs as to what's going on. One, one belief is that possibly the, the, the gospel writers got it wrong. That, that John has it placed in the wrong spot, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it placed in the wrong spot in the temple. That that somehow scripture has gotten it wrong, right? Others think that maybe John is using his artistic uh, um, license, thank you, whoever said that, thank you, artistic license, to, to kind of move the story at an earlier point in his, his gospel so as to emphasize a, a theological point about Jesus. Well, as we read through the story, we're going to see that he does make a theological point about Jesus, but, but I don't think that he had to move the story to make that point. The, the, the place in Jesus' life, uh, the, 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 the time that this occurs in Jesus' life does not make the point that John's about to make about Jesus. It doesn't matter when it happens, right? So I don't think that's necessarily what's happening. The, the, the theory that I think is most 
true, that I believe is true about this, is that there's actually two different occurrences of Jesus cleansing the temple. That John records this experience at the front end of his ministry, the very beginning of his public ministry, and then the other gospel authors record a, a similar scene that happens at the end of his public ministry. See, I, I think that it's probably, if you think about it, not too hard to consider that, that there's these two different stories going on. There's, there's enough of a difference in the language. If you read the stories, you'll notice that, that the, the religious leaders get angry at Jesus for two different things. So here in the beginning, it's the authority that Jesus is showing up with, and, and there later on, it's, it's for uh, what, they, what they claim to be his blasphemy, right? But, but more than anything, I think it's not hard to believe that, 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 that this could happen twice, that Jesus would need to cleanse the temple more than once, right? I mean, you, you think of us, how, how often do we need to be told twice to do something? I mean, as a parent, like, listen, you're, you're fooling yourself if you think that you just have to say it once and it's going to stick with your kids. Right? I mean, we want them to listen the first time. That's not an, not an inappropriate goal to work towards with your children. But oftentimes, you need to say things twice to them. I know I'm, I'm thick-headed, so all you have to do is ask Tara how many times she has to tell me to do something, and, and I'm sure she'll tell you at least, at least twice. <laughs> yeah. See, twice the people of God had to be confronted by Jesus about the state of their worship. Twice Jesus walks into the temple and is confronted with people abusing their relationship with God. Twice Jesus drives out the, the, the sacrificial animals that were being sold in the temple. Twice he, he overturns the money changers' tables. Twice Jesus' visit to the temple at Passover highlights how broken we are as a people. Right? I mean, it, it, it's not hard for us to acknowledge that Jesus might have to say things a couple times to make his point clear, that, we, that we're a broken people, that even in our approach to worship, that there's something not the way it's supposed to be. I imagine that if, even if Jesus visited our local congregations today, there would be things he would point out to say, ah, that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be, Right? I mean, we, we do that pretty well ourselves. We, we kind of look at how other churches do things, and we say, That's, you're not doing it right, right? See, I think this should tell us something about our stubborn and hard-hearted hearts. This should tell us something. The fact that Jesus had to cleanse the temple twice should tell us something about the state of our hearts and our minds and our ways of drawing near to God in worship. And I don't think that's hard to believe. I don't think that's hard to, to imagine that, that God would have to do that. After he drives the animals and their sellers and the money changers out of the temple, Jesus tells the people this. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't, don't make it a marketplace. So what, what is a father's house supposed to be? If, it's, if this is not okay, then what is it supposed to be, right? Well, it's supposed to be a house of prayer. God's temple was meant to be a place for the people of God to meet with God. Before the temple was the tabernacle, and the tabernacle literally means, means tenting among us. 
Right? God tented among his people. The temple is meant to be a place where God's people gather to be with God. Not to, not, not to sell things and, and, and to make a profit off of things. We can read in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. See, the, the Father's house is meant to be a place where, where we can love God with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our strength and all of our souls. But this wasn't what Jesus happened upon when he and his disciples entered the temple. There were livestock mooing. There were sheep buying. There were pigeons cooing. There were money changers busy, busy like, kind of exchanging coins. Have you, ever, have you ever, like, you know, worked with a handful of coins? They're not quiet. These weren't people preparing their hearts for worship. What people were doing was seeking the most convenient and simple way for them to show up at the temple. You know, in those days when they celebrated Passover, people were coming from all over the area. It wasn't like people lived in and around Jerusalem. At this point, there had already been the exile where the followers of God had been spread out throughout Asia and throughout the area. And so now when they come together in Jerusalem for Passover, people had to travel long distances, right? And so they were gathering here in the temple, seeking the most convenient and simple way to worship God. What about us? You, you think about coming to worship this morning. You, you think about how, how you got here. You're, you're, you're showing up here. Was it a matter of convenience was it a matter of devotion? Was this, this morning, did you wake up saying, okay, we've got to go to church this morning? Or was there a sense in your heart that was saying, I, I want to be together with the people of God? There's something unique and special about gathering for worship that I, I can't find anywhere else that I long for and I desire. And I get it, it's not Pastor Dan's sermon, it's not, not the words I say, but it's, it's the people of God gathering the, around the word of God. Is it true for you that worship is a matter of convenience or obligation or is it a matter of devotion? As I mentioned, uh, for Passover, people traveled from all over the area to gather together to, to celebrate this week-long celebration uh, of God's people remembering how God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. And, and, and as part of their celebration, they were to follow the Mosaic Law's uh, instructions on how to, how to bring a sacrifice before the Lord and how to, how to worship God. But as I mentioned, with people traveling from all over the area, it, it was kind of inconvenient to, to, to bring your cattle with you, to bring your sheep with you, to bring you know, your pigeons, to travel with, with these things, and, and to make sure that they remained unblemished in, in the state that they were meant to be for the sacrifice there in the temple. And so selling these animals for sacrifice in Jerusalem kind of held a benefit for, for those who were traveling and said, hey, it'll be much more convenient for us to buy our sacrificial animal in the temple when we get there. Some of us are traveling you know, weeks, 
days, whatever. But you know what? It's going to be a lot easier if I don't have to pack that in the car or pack that in my wagon uh, and, and travel with it to, to Jerusalem. So why don't we just pick one up when we get there, right? But do you think God wants a relationship with us that's characterized by convenience or by love? Do you think God wants us to, to draw near to him because, hey, the pastor's going to notice if I'm not there, and if he notices I'm not there, he's going to make me feel bad about not being there, so I better be there? Or do you think God wants to know what the state of your heart is in coming before him? And, and God cares about the state of your soul as you draw near to him. Does the word convenience or obligation fit into your definition of, of loving God with all of your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul? Do, do you think that God desires sacrifices that are given out of convenience or out of, out of the sense of obligation or shame? Or do you think he desires sacrifices out of a heart of genuine love? See, worshiping God in the temple out of convenience is like obeying God's law out of obligation, right? It's, it's just legalism. It, it, it's, 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 as the, the phrase we learned last week, it's putting lipstick on a pig, right? It's, it's trying to make us look better than we are by, by, by dressing up the outside, but inside we're just, we're broken. We're, we're these whitewashed tombs, right? It misses the point for us to, 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 to draw near to God and worship out of convenience or making sure that the people around us see us showing up to worship God to make it look like our lives are in order. It, it misses the point. It's a waste of time. God desires worshipers who come before him with intentionality, with an awareness of who he is, with a, an awareness of, 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 of why they're there, with an awareness of, of how great and gracious God really is. Waking up early to, to worship God isn't necessarily convenient. I don't know about you, but setting my alarm clock earlier in the morning isn't exactly uh, something I, I would do out of convenience or obligation. But, but how often does that happen, right? We, we set our alarm clock early because we think that God, God will be upset with us if we don't. Is that the reason why we should be meeting with God or, or why, why we want to wake up to spend time with God? Devoting half of your Sunday to gathering with other believers, it's not simple or convenient. But, but God doesn't want us to settle for convenient. That's, a, that's the point. God wants us to have hearts that are fully devoted to him because it's in that place of devotion that we have this intimacy where God provides all that we need, where he makes clear all that we truly are, all that really matters. God doesn't want, to, want you to settle for a convenient life. He, he promises you an abundant life in Christ as you love him, not conveniently, but with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. See, I think the issue here in the temple, it, it, as John records it, it, it isn't necessarily about the morality or the immorality of what's happening there in the temple. It's not about uh, the fact that they, they're there in the, the court of the Gentiles there in the temple or, uh, or, or whatnot. I mean, actually, the other, other gospel writers pick up on some of these things later on. No, I think John's point, John's focus in telling this 
this occurrence of Jesus cleansing the temple was to point out how broken their worship was. That it had become more about convenience. It had become more about a, a, a trade. It, for the money changers, it had been more about making a, a little bit of a, a buck off of helping people transfer their money from what, the, what they had in their pockets to the tyranny coinage that was accepted in the temple worship. This was John getting at the heart of things, that the heart of the people was broken in their worship of God. They're just going through the motions. Do we go through the motions in our worship? I think there's times where I go through the motions in my worship. Right? If I'm going to be honest with you guys this morning, there are times where my life gets so busy that going to church is out of obligation or out of convenience. And I know, I'm the pastor, so I have to show up. But I don't have to show up, right? It should be, it should be that I get to show up. My heart comes here, and I should be excited to be here, right? So whether I'm required to be here or not, I'm still responsible for the state of my soul before God, as each and every one of you are, right? John's desire is to, is to make clear how broken the people's worship was. That, that their heart was really about pursuing convenience and simplicity rather than this intimate relationship with God. Right? God, God created you in his image. God desires for you to reflect his image, not because God is, is this egomaniac who wants everyone to look like him, but because when we reflect his image, there is a fullness of life and purpose in being good and perfect like he is good and perfect, right? In coming to, to draw near to him in worship, God transforms us to be more and more like him. So God doesn't want us to show up out of obligation thinking, oh, I better go see God today. He wants to do something else in my life. He, he wants us to have this genuine excitement an anticipation of what God is going to change and transform in our lives to make our lives better, more like him, more abundant. See, I think John points out the fact that, that the people's worship was broken. Have you ever thought, taking the time to kind of evaluate what the state of your soul is in coming to worship? I mean, I, I think it's, it's not a bad thing to do. It may be uncomfortable, but it's not a bad thing to do. And, and here's why I think it's not a bad thing to do. Because when we, when we consider our own brokenness in light of God, this is, this is not how we might evaluate ourselves, say, in a sport or in our company. This is not like a 90-day a review or something like that where we realize all the places that we're insufficient and we just have to try harder to, to improve for our next evaluation. See, when we consider who we are in light of God and when we acknowledge our brokenness, God doesn't leave us there. His purpose in sending his son was so that he could purify us and make us whole. And so, with the bad news comes the good news. Jesus restores us. Jesus restores worship to be what it was always intended to be, to its rightful place. 
Look at verses 17 to 22 of our passage. John tells us his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, the religious leaders, they want to know, by what authority do you cast these people out of the temple? Where, where do you get off coming in here and making a whip of cords and driving the animals out and, and turning over these tables of the money changers? Who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? And so they say, show us a sign. Show us a sign that proves how you're an authoritative man. Show us a sign that that proves that you have the right to do what you've just done. (laughs) But the thing is, he's already shown them a sign. If only they had the eyes to see it. By cleansing the temple, Jesus enacts this sign from the scriptures that was about to be fulfilled in his death and resurrection. By cleansing the temple, by driving these things out, Jesus enacts a sign that purifies, that that, that his death and resurrection would purify the hearts and minds of the people. And in him and him alone would true worship, worship of God be found. See, Jesus could drive out the animals used for sacrifice Because animals would no longer be necessary for sacrifice when he was done. Jesus could drive these animals out because he would be the ultimate sacrifice, the one and once and for all sacrifice, the sacrifice that means the priests don't have to keep coming back and and making atonement for the sins of the people because atonement has been made through Jesus' death and resurrection. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the most perfect substitute for us, took our place on the cross, died, and rose again so that we can have life, there's no longer a need for these animals to be sacrificed to make atonement for our sins. The author of Hebrews tells us that that Jesus offered himself once for all time, a single sacrifice for, for sins, because it was by this single offering that he's perfected for all time those who are being, who are being sanctified, Right? You and I, those of us who who said yes to believing that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he said he did and has accomplished this, this life for us through his death and resurrection, we are those who are being sanctified. His sacrifice is enough. We no longer have to pretend that, that, that we're holy and righteous and just. We no longer have to make sure we, we put on the, the lipstick of Christianity to, to look like we're better than we are because the reality is that it's him at work in our hearts that's transforming us and making us whole. He is the sacrifice, the single offering that's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so when he drives these animals out of the temple, he's giving the religious leaders a sign that they just, they're just not getting. This is lost on the religious leaders 
as they think about what Jesus is saying. They think that Jesus is talking about this temple that Herod helped to build that, that so far has taken 46 years and it's still not complete when Jesus is doing these things. It's still not done. And they're saying, hey, this, it's taken us 46 years to get here. You think you're going to do it in three days? They have no clue what Jesus is saying. It's lost on them. But Jesus is talking about a new temple. Not, not a temple made in human hands, but a temple from God. Uh, the place where, where truth and grace come together. Where, where God and man are, are brought together to meet and, and, and to, to worship God in spirit and truth. You may remember the story of when Jesus met the Samaritan woman by the well. And they get into this debate as to where true worship is. She's thinking here on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship. And she says, but you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem, right? But what does Jesus say to her? He says, woman, an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words... What Jesus is saying is true worship will not be in a building made with human hands, but will be in spirit and truth through Jesus himself. Later on, she comes to realize that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for, and that she understands a little bit more fully about what Jesus is talking about. I like the way the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 8 of Hebrews. We read this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Who's that? That's Jesus. We have a priest unlike any other, any other priest. One who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. Right? Man set up a tent in the wilderness. A tabernacle for God to meet with his people. Eventually they built the temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed. They built another one. Destroyed. Again, all of these are man-made structures where man would gather to worship God, but no longer because God would meet with his people in a tent that he set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Jesus is a, is a high priest who, who, who doesn't show up empty-handed. He's not a high priest who, who doesn't actually make a sacrifice. He makes a sacrifice. He upholds the law. He's a just Savior. He doesn't just swish his wand or snap his fingers and, and, and upend everything. He upholds this measure of justice through the sacrifice of his own life. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, right? This temple that the religious leaders are speaking about with Jesus is a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It's a shadow of God's intention of, of us spending all eternity in God's presence, being with God. That's what the earthly priests uh, were, uh, do their ministry in. This copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But then listen to this. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates, uh, sorry, as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Church, our brokenness isn't some final condemnation, right? We don't have to be afraid of exploring where we're broken. We don't have to be afraid that, that we're going to find out when we spend time with Jesus that, that, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Why? Because it's not going to be on us to fix those things. It's going to be on us to depend on him to fix those things in us. Our brokenness isn't some final condemnation. Jesus actually came to fix and renew what was broken. Twice Jesus drives the animals out of the temple. Twice he upends the, 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 the tables of the money changers. Twice Jesus cleanses the temple to remind us why he came. To seek and to save that which is lost. To to purify in, in a way that no human priest could purify the hearts and minds and souls of his people. So, so don't be afraid to consider your sin and your brokenness. This is not a time that we need to shy away from. This is not a time where we need to feel obligated to give something up, to, to, to reflect on, on uh, the brevity of life. This is a time for us to be aware of of what's actually going on in the state of our soul. And then to recognize that Jesus doesn't just give us forgiveness and new life. He purifies us. As he purifies worship in the temple. See, Jesus came to expose our brokenness. To bring those things that are hidden in darkness out into the light. But he doesn't leave us in our brokenness and then walk away. See, Jesus is more like the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? Jesus is like the Good Samaritan who, who, who draws near to the man who's been beaten and left to die by the side of the road, who, who, who purifies our wounds with oil and then bandages up and binds up what is broken. Jesus is like the, the Good Samaritan who, who treats the wounded man better than he deserves by providing all that he needs to recover and be made whole again. I think there's good news in this season. But in order for us to understand the good news, we can only see it when we consider the bad news as well. When we understand, when we acknowledge the brokenness. So what will you find uh, if God were to search your heart? Well, I can tell you. Sin. But, but don't don't walk away with your shoulders down and, and, and beaten up and feeling like less of a, a human being because there's good news in that bad news. Don't, don't try to deny it or hide it or, or, or compare yourself to someone else and say, well, I'm, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Denying that good and evil runs through your heart it's like, like avoiding stepping on a scale after a, a weekend of feasting, right? Or, 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 or avoiding going to your doctor. Ignorance is not bliss because ignorance about your situation doesn't change your circumstances. 
See, when Jesus cleansed the temple and promised a new temple in three days, he's pointing to the fact that through him, we can truly worship the Father. Through him, our brokenness can be purified and made whole. Through him, we can truly have a right relationship with God. So church, part of the challenge for you this morning is for you to sit with these questions. What, what tables do you need to let Jesus turn over in your heart? What needs to be driven from your life because it's a hindrance to your relationship and your worship of God? You might start with something like, yeah, there's pride in my life. Yeah, okay. But, but like last week, ask it again, but why? Why is there pride in my life? You might realize that pride is your way of protecting you from uh, the fear of, of, of shame or whatever it be. Keep asking your life, or keep asking yourself, what things need to be driven from my life? What do I need to ask God? What do I need to ask Jesus to purify and drive from the heart, from my heart, from the temple that Jesus meets me in? What tables need to be overturned in my life so that, so that I can truly draw near to God in worship? I can truly pay attention to his love for me and his invitation for me to respond to him in love. See, Jesus can and does provide what our hearts need to be purified, if only we'll let him. You know, in Lent, people typically give things up. But maybe, maybe you'll consider doing this. Rather than giving something up for Lent, maybe you build a practice into your, your daily life. Here's an idea. Take some time to sit prayerfully with Psalm 139. Let God reveal your brokenness and then let him heal you like the good Samaritan heals the man broken and left to die on the side of the road. So pray this prayer every day. But not just pray it and then get up and go. Pray it and sit there and see what the Spirit shines his light on in your heart. God, search me. Know my heart. Try me. Test me. Evaluate me. Know my thoughts. And then surrender, church. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Heavenly Father, we, we desire, Lord, to know what is broken. Not, not to heap guilt or uh, burning coals on our, on our heads, but Lord, we desire so that you might purify us. Lord, we don't want to live in ignorance any longer. We don't want to walk around slapping lipstick on a pig, pretending to be better than we are, or feeling like we have to look a certain way around one another. We want to be humble. We want to, we want to be receptive to those invitations to repent, to, to, to kneel before you and and seek your, your work of purification in our lives. God, give us all courage to consider what is broken so that we might also celebrate how you are healing and purifying us. Lord, Resurrection Sunday is such a celebration, but it's such a celebration because we have first gone to this place of acknowledging 
That brokenness and sin is not just out there in the world. It runs right through the center of my heart. So guide us. Direct us. Have your way in us. Reveal what is broken and purify us and make us whole again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.